0: thank you, Nathan and Gary. Think about Nathan leading us today. He is just days away from being a husband. We were talking beforehand just about how it just comes upon you, those of you that have been married, and think back to those days. In just days, you'll be married, and of course, Faith, we think of you as well. It's uh, an exciting time here at Westmount when we think about... um, Two becoming one, especially in our midst. Uh, And beloved, can I just submit to you with everything going on in the world today, from plague to protest, uh, this is something uh, that is just good and warming the heart. So uh, Nathan, Faith, we're excited for you, very, very excited, and just want to pray a blessing on them in a moment as we prepare our hearts for the word, uh, as they look to be guided by the word, one of the encouragements. Uh, for us, has been that heart's desire by them, and as a church, we want to rally around them and help them do just that, uh, start life together, uh, grow together in the Word of God. So uh, We love Nathan and Faith. We're going to pray for them now, and let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord and commit not only the rest of this service, but uh, these two young folks to the Lord. Father in heaven, God, you are a good God. Lord, our hearts uh, are bare before you. You recognize that this week, maybe even this weekend, with the events of the world, Lord, we struggle at times to consider that, uh, that you are good through it, that you have a hand of purpose in these things. Again, whether it is plague or protest, God, you are through these things. And Lord, we don't deserve this, but you do give us reminders of your goodness, glimpses, such as two young souls that love you. Wanting to cleave to one another, Lord, and begin life together in such a world. Lord, we rejoice that you've brought them here, that they're in our midst, and we can commend them to you this week. And Father, we do just that. We submit Nathan and Faith to you as they take this step, this very important step together. Lord, we pray, of course, for the events leading up to Saturday. We pray for the union the ceremony on Saturday and most importantly, Lord, we pray for the, the first few steps, the first few days, weeks, months, and years together as one flesh. God, that you would fortify them. Lord, we pray for that union, that you would bless it, Lord, as I seek your glory uh, becoming one. And God, as we look ahead to that good on Saturday, Lord, this... This ceremony that gives us hope, Lord, when we think of the next generation. Father, we are reminded also not only of the blessing we ask for that day, but we think, Lord, about the hope we have beyond in that final day as well, Lord. We think about wedding and matrimony as a picture, Lord, of the gospel. We also think, Lord, of the, the, the crowning glory that comes Uh, We think about a bride being presented to a husband. We think about the bride, the bride, being presented to the husband on that day as well. When we look to the end today, Father, we think about getting to that point and how hard it is, Lord, again, as we've already said, through all the things that are going on in the world today. Lord, we know we stumble, we fall, we are in disbelief, Lord, and we pray that you can strengthen our feeble hearts in that day to look toward that final wedding day where we will worship the Lord Jesus. Help us today, Lord, to seek to live in a way that continually expresses how thankful we are. Help us now as we turn to your word to seek him better, to serve him better, to serve him more faithfully We ask you to make the Lord Jesus Christ known and known fully through your word as we turn to it now. Lord, we're reminded, not just in the wake of of earthly matrimony, Lord, but when we think about future matrimony, we know that to know Christ is truly a foretaste of heaven's glory. Oh God, may we have a hunger to experience that heaven on earth in all its fullness now until, until we enter the great heaven of heavens and worship and serve our Lord Jesus Christ with true perfection. O great God, our Father, cast that vision of the future before us now. Cast that vision of future glory in our hearts. Set it in our minds now as we look to your word. O Lord, open our hearts wide and fill us with the hope that only you can give. Now and forevermore we pray. Amen. Beloved, I invite you to open up your Bible to the end, Revelation 19, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 19, we will be in those final chapters today, Revelation 19 right through to 22. Well, the fog rolled in off the coast of California on the morning of July the 4th, 1952. As the fog filled the strait between Catalina Island and the California mainland, a young lady by the name of Florence Chadwick stood on the island shore. Florence was an accomplished swimmer in her day. She had swam the English Channel, done it more than once there and back in record time. And on this morning, her journey was the 26 mile swim from island to mainland off the coast of California. A long distance, when you think about swimming any distance, but certainly 26 miles, a long distance, but for Florence, an achievable distance, because Florence was a swimmer. Flanked by a small boat with her trainer in it to guide her path, Florence set out. Florence started strong, slapping the water with gusto for those first few hours, Then, at the 15-hour mark of her swim, fog settled in. And not just any fog, heavy fog. In fact, every time Florence looked up, all she saw was fog. Every stroke, every push was gray mist and fog around her. Florence grew weary. She could see no end in sight. Her coach in the little boat beside her, egging her on, urging her on to just keep going. But Florence's muscles were spent, her arms and legs drained, and her eyes were very foggy. With that, her emotions and wills started to sink. Florence could see nothing ahead. Finally, when she felt she could take it no more, Florence gave up. She was hauled into the little boat. The swim was over. Not soon after, in the boat, the fog did start to lift, and the shoreline became visible, and lo and behold, there it was. In plain sight now, they were only half a mile from the shore. That's where she had stopped. The next day at her news conference, Florence said this, and I quote, I'm not excusing myself. I am the one that asked to be pulled out. However, if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. End quote. If I could have seen the land. Florence knew the shoreline was there. She knew it. She knew it. She learned it. She scouted it. She knew all about the shoreline. Yet that morning, her eyes couldn't see it. Yes, church, it wasn't the fog that caused Florence to come up short. No, it was her focus. Her focus. And Westmount, as the fog of this pandemic rolls in, Are we succumbing to the same short-sightedness that Florence did that day? Are you growing weary? Are you tempted to despair today? Do you look up in these times and see nothing but gray? Christian, are you struggling with hopelessness during this COVID-19 pandemic? I think we are all facing a little bit of a struggle here. Maybe, for some of us, it's fuller blown. For others, maybe it's just a tug that's growing, an undercurrent, if you will. And no matter our outlook this morning, church, we need to see the end today. Christian, we will look at the light at the end of the tunnel. With clear eyes, we will see the shoreline, the horizon that is ahead of us, so that it is reset, or even maybe for some of you, set for the first time in our minds where we're going. It's our spiritual first aid this morning is an application of our coming hope. That is hope that stretches beyond this life and it cuts through the present fog. And church, mark this, our hope is not a leftover piece at the end of our spiritual first aid. Hope in Christ is not that whimsical thing that you pull out. It's not like the doctor giving you that lollipop on the way out the door, no. If that is what Christian hope is, like a parting candy to put a smile on your face, if it was simply a sweet treat to help us get through life, then we are to be pitied. We are to be most pitied. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Oh, Christ is not a crutch for this life only. Christ is not a nice thought to get us through day to day. Christ is not simply a help. No, friend, Christ is our hope. And this morning in the fog of this pandemic, we'll be reminded why. By four truths presented in these final four chapters of God's Word. Now, as you look at the book of Revelation... Maybe you had that tingle as you opened it, recognizing, wow, this is a big book, and there's lots in there I don't understand, you might say. A word before we begin, the, the purpose of this morning is not to go through verse by verse, detail by detail, to dig in deep. We do that here at Westmount. We haven't been in this series very intentionally because of the times. And God willing, one day, one day soon, I pray, we are going to go through Revelation verse by verse. But that's not today. Like all the texts in this series, everything we've been intending to do, it's not to drill down, but it's to take a look at these texts, maybe in a very different way, by survey, by bird's eye, and to pull out the principles that are in them. And this is most certainly true with a book like Revelation. A book like Revelation, where at the end we have so much principle that certainly serves as the infrastructure for our hope. That's what we're going to do. We want to simply, beloved, survey the horizon here, Be reminded of the approaching shore. That's what we're going to do. And to do that, now let's look down at Revelation 19 and our first facet of hope. We would call it this Hope's Return. Hope's Return. The book of Revelation is a book that outlines the future return of Christ. And this second coming of Christ is very different to the first coming of Christ. Remember, that first coming was 2,000 years ago by what? Low estate. And it was missed by many. Christ's first coming, mostly noted for what? His words, his subjection, his death. Those were the hallmarks of the first coming of Christ. Christ's first coming, as we saw to begin this series, was centered on what? Salvation. Spiritual salvation, to save our souls from eternal separation. That was the point of the first coming, to do that work. Salvation, our only need, we said to begin this series, our only need, salvation before we die. That would be salvation from the second death. Second death, an eternal death. And that's a salvation only possible because of Christ's work at his first coming, which was, as we said, a perfect life, lived, lived, That perfect life laid down, and then that perfect righteousness imputed to us, church. Imputed to us. Now that first coming on the cross, Christ bore the wrath that his true children deserved. That's the first coming. A wrath that we all deserve, and a wrath of God that is coming upon this earth. Well, as we look at the second coming here, today in Revelation, we enter the book here in the 19th chapter, And we need to note this as a milestone. We're coming into this book at the end of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. That's where we enter in. The bulk of this final book, if you were to look at chapters 6-18, through is an extended description of the wrath of God being poured out on the globe. That time of unprecedented judgment in the land would be seven years. It's known as the tribulation. The Old Testament prophets called it the day of the Lord. Intense, and it only grows in intensity as you go through that day of the Lord. The first three and a half years are intense, but then you get to the back half, the next three and a half years, and it is a time of wide-scale, catastrophic upheaval, because the wrath of God is poured out everywhere, trumpets, bowls, and so on, to the tune of a third of the earth being wiped out, hundred-pound hailstones. We can go on and on. This is unprecedented upheaval on the globe. Yet, as we now come in at the end of that wrath, two things deserve our attention as we enter this scene. First of all, we church, we church, we're not there. We are not there for that wrath. The church safely with Christ caught up before the tribulation. Yes, all that catastrophic judgment, but we the church are spared from all of it. That's one. Secondly, we're not there. Second, we note that through all of that wrath, though, there are people there, and people there, note this, that persist in rejecting Christ. All of that wrath being poured out. And one of the things that strikes you as you read the book of Revelation is people continue to refuse to turn to God. Imagine it. The rebels and evil persist as everything they hold dear around them is crumbling. Right to the end, they reject the Lord Jesus. They refuse to repent. Those defiant against our Lord, led by the great deceiver himself, they march on through those chapters. And so that landscape of evil rebels fighting against our Lord to the very end, even after months and months of God's wrath, again, pouring out on the earth. Well, that sets the table. That sets the table as we come to the end of the wrath right here. It's like a red carpet now for what comes next. So let's begin in verse 11 of chapter 19. Then, so this would be after the tribulation. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's very different to the first coming of Christ, is it not? This second coming, this return of Christ, is one that nobody can miss. No one can miss. This is a coming not in meekness, but this is in might. This is a coming of Christ, not low in a manger, but from the heights of heaven. Beloved, this is the return of Christ that is our hope. This is hope's return. Now, as you look at verses like this, there's so much we're tempted to comment on here. I mean, this is a huge sweeping scene, is it not? However, we will keep our survey to just a few very important observations which is the purpose of what we're doing this morning. Just a few. Let me just mention a few. Number one is this, to state the most obvious. Christ does return. Christ does return. Yes, we need to state the obvious, especially in the climate that we're in. Christ is coming back. Just as Christ, in fact, said he would. Remember, at his first coming and in his ministry, didn't he tell us this? Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Jesus said... Immediately after the tribulation of those days, then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus says not only that he's coming back, but he says when? After the tribulation. So clear. That description, by the way, is not just, by the way, I'll be back. But that's an encouragement just before the cross. That's when he gives you those most vivid descriptions of what the end will be like, before that graphic description of the cross. That's at the end. So Christ said he was coming back. He told his followers so to give them hope. Hope. Hence, by the way, you get parting words in those final hours of Jesus' life on earth. Like John 14, 1, right? I think about Jesus saying to his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. That's where we get many of those discourses of what's to come. So that's number one here. Christ does return. Number two, Christ returns in power and might. You see that. He returns in power and might. From his powerful description, look at verse 12. Eyes like a flame of fire to the mighty action of his return, to the conquering of his return. Verse 15, with a sharp sword to strike down the nations. This conquering is not just the nations, but look at verse 19. This is all earthly opposition. Look at 19. Again, this morning is not to unpack the beast or the antichrist or the mark of the beast. That's not the point this morning. In fact, if you look at those verses and you take anything away from that, it is this. Regardless of who or what stands in opposition to Jesus Christ here, look at it. Regardless of who or what, Christ returns and he conquers them. They are defeated. They are vanquished for good. Thirdly, Christ returns with others. Christ returns with others. Look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Who are the armies of heaven here? You see that expression there? Who are they? Well, first, I want you to consider their description in this verse. What do they look like? Well, they're arrayed in fine linen, which would be white and pure. Who in this book, in direct context is described with white linen. Well, in Revelation 3, we're told that conquering saints will be clothed in what? White garments. In Revelation 7, we learn that also tribulation saints will be clothed in what? White robes. This verse says this group is not only clothed in white, but also what? Verse 14, they're not only known by what they're wearing, but they're known by what? Who they are following, Verse 14 tells us they will be following Jesus, looking like Jesus, clothed in white and on white horses. But here is the action. They are following him. So key. Church, even greater than the testimony here in Revelation of their garbs, consider the testimony of the New Testament. I think about the book of Acts alone, who is known for following Jesus. Who do you see in all of the letters of the New Testament? Galatia, like we looked at, Philippi, on and on it goes, Ephesus, who is known for following Jesus? Beloved, it's you and me, it's the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. We are the followers of Jesus. Christian followers of Jesus like you and me, that's who's following Jesus here. It's amazing. It's the church, the church. All our brothers and sisters that have gone before us, that may go after us, all in the church age, that call Jesus Lord, here following Christ. Returning with Christ out of heaven, by the way, after being caught up with him before the tribulation. Remember, Jesus said, I will keep you from that hour of trial, Revelation 3.20. All of those kept from that hour with Christ in heaven now return with him. That's hope's return. And that is what you're looking ahead to Christ coming back in power and might. That is your hope in these dark times. But it's one. We look at another. We've looked at hope's return. Let's look at hope's reign. After Christ returns and conquers, we immediately see this. We look now at chapter 20. Look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Satan, who you see there in those verses, has been doing what to this point, and most particularly during the tribulation? Up to this point, he's been roaming, deceiving, "...instigating, warring. He seems to be running roughshod through the whole earth up to this point. But now Satan is bound and sealed shut, unable to deceive the nations any longer. Do you see that? You can't do it anymore. And yes, that tells you that a time is coming where Satan will be jailed and powerless. Which I pray even that thought is encouraging, where it seems like the great deceiver is in everything these days. Does it not seem so?" There's a day coming when he will be rendered powerless. For a thousand years, Satan will not be able to prowl around like a lion, First Peter, looking for someone to devour. For one full millennium, Satan will not be the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians. That is a thousand years, not of Satan's rule on earth, not of Satan's rule, right? Think about his domain here, no longer, but verse 4 says what? Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Christ, who, by the way, Christ who's always been king, always been king, Now, Christ comes and sits on the throne. Kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is no longer just at hand, but it's been enacted. Hope returned, and now hope reigns. Now, Christ, maybe you caught this, doesn't just reign alone, right? He's not reigning alone. This is amazing. This verse also tells us that those martyred during that tribulation, that intense persecution, During those seven years, those martyred, losing their lives for the cause of Christ, they are resurrected. Those, of course, are called the tribulation saints. They're resurrected, and what did we just learn? They reign with Christ for the thousand years. Yet, they are not the only saints to reign with Jesus in this millennial kingdom. I want you to look at the start of verse 4 again. What does it say? It says, then I saw thrones, and who was sitting on those? Those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So another group here is reigning with Jesus. Who is that? Well, again, this book tells us. Revelation 2 says that conquering saints, the church, will be given authority over the nations to rule with a rod of iron. But that's not all. Chapter 3, in fact, you could probably turn there. It's always good to see it with our own eyes. Revelation 3, look at verse 21. This is the next chapter. This is is Jesus speaking to the church and particularly encouraging those that persevere, right? The conquerors in the end. He says this to the conquering church saints in Laodicea, which by extension is true for us. It's for you and me, Christian. Consider this, Revelation 3.21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Amazing. Church, I pray this is an encouragement to you. We will reign, the saints will reign with Jesus, with Christ. It's that great great eschatological truth. But it's not new. In the Old Testament, Daniel 7, with the foretold dominion of the Son of Man, the Christ, we're told this in Daniel 7, verse 22. Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, And the time came when the saints, note it, possessed the kingdom. This is an old testament truth. What about in the New Testament? Let's just pick one of the letters. First Corinthians six, verse two says this do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This is all over the Bible. Beloved, we reign with Christ in the coming kingdom of God. And why? Because we earn something? No, because we are something? Well, in one sense, yes, we are Christians. We have union with the Christ. We are in him, and thus we will reign with him. That's the hope we have, Christian. That's what you're looking ahead to, the reign of Christ. But let's be clear, church, let's be clear on this point. That is not who is reigning right now, is it? In fact, if you survey the world around you, I ask you, who is reigning? What is reigning? Fear reigns. Doubt reigns. Uncertainty reigns. And they're reigning, again, as I said earlier, it seems without limit. As an unbound Satan roams and prowls around with the satanic influence through the nations. That's what rules today, but not tomorrow, when Christ reigns and sits us with him. That is hope's reign. Next, we've looked at hope's return, hope's reign. Now let's look at hope's reconciliation. Hope's reconciliation. So Christ is returned. Christ is reigned, but is that it? I mean, that could be it, and is that it? I mean, a thousand years is a long time, but note this. A thousand years is a long time, but it's still a limited time. A thousand years will end. What happens after that? Well, we find out in verse 7. Look at it with me. Verse 7, back to chapter 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who would deceive them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is released and immediately what does he do? He's released and he mounts another strike. In fact, he mounts a global strike as soon as he is released. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. After his incarceration, after being locked up for a millennium, after a thousand years, he comes out and immediately goes at the Lord. Think about it. After a millennia before that jail time of being subject to God, right? We think about him needing God's permission, whether it's for Peter or for Job, Right? He was already subjected to God after all of that. After all the demons, all of those that worked for him were dispelled. After the dark powers were disarmed by Jesus, after all of that futility and the jail time, Satan is released and says, let me at him. Just let me at him. He's like a fool, right? Just being held back, holding out your army. Picture, right? The Almighty One with his hand on his forehead, And he's just trying to swing his fists and he can't reach Jesus. Just amazing. But church, I want you to grab that image because that's Satan. It's your image of futility. That's the foolishness of not just Satan, but anybody going against the Almighty God. Satan knows he can't win this final battle, but it doesn't stop him fighting, does it? His whole motivation, even in defeat, even when he knows he's done, his whole motivation, his whole impetus is just to go after God. Go against God. No matter what, I know I'm going down, but I'm going against you. It doesn't matter how much Satan or anyone else, for that matter, fights. doesn't matter how powerful they may seem. It doesn't matter. You cannot defeat God. It's not only futility, but mark this church, it's an impossibility. You know, as you look at this passage, I, like you, am always awestruck at the events of this passage. thing is, they happen so quickly, just in a couple verses, but just consider the picture of this final impressive attempt. I mean, Satan, look at it, he amasses an army from where? The four corners of the earth. This is like the whole earth gathering The world, the number of forces, the number of foot soldiers. Look at the description, like the sand of the sea. And that mass swarms and surrounds the camp of the saints. Where is the hope for you Lord of the Rings fans out there? This reminds me of that infamous scene at the end of Return of the King, right? Where you have the small remnant. Right? Aragorn and his bunch just there. And what do you have? Evil from the four corners of Middle Earth, right, that surround them. That's your picture. And they're just standing there surrounded. And an onlooker would say, where is the hope? Where is the hope? You know, in that war, in that story, Saron, like Satan, is defeated when what? With one fell swoop, one action, and what is it? Something thrown into the fire. A ring, ring of power thrown into the fire. Here, this war ends similarly with what? In verse 10, with the devil who had deceived. He's thrown into the lake of fire, and it all ends. And what do you have in that moment? Where in return to the king, the ground just quickly swallows them all up, and they're done. Here you have armies burned up from heaven. All of those surrounding armies just in a moment smited from heaven. And Satan thrown into the fire below to be tormented forever and ever. That is Christ taking care of Satan in a very final and ultimate way. That is Christ not just crushing at the cross, not just binding for a thousand years, but look at this church. This is Satan's final destruction. This is ultimate reconciliation. This is Satan's ultimately, or Satan, I should say, ultimately receiving what he's always deserved. This is finally it coming to bear for Satan. He finally receives eternal death, powerlessness in eternal death. And of course, this coming reconciliation, we would say, as much as Satan is in view here, it's not just for Satan, that great rebel himself. The reconciliation includes the reconciliation of all the rebels that have come after Satan. Those, as the end of chapter 20 describes, that will receive their final reconciliation. The great white throne judgment. You see it there, beginning in verse 11. It's also known as the final judgment, by the way. That final reconciliation after death for all those that have rejected Jesus Christ here on earth. And that reconciliation was offered in this life. In fact, it's offered right now. That reconciliation offered now, but people reject it. Reject it. Reconciliation, remember... In that rejection, when you think about the great rejector and all the rejectors after him, reconciliation is simply then just settling accounts. If that's what you want, if that's what your soul yearns for, then that is what you will get. And friends, all of humanity, market Philippians 2, can think of, and many other verses, all of humanity will be reconciled to God. But here's the thing not in the same way. There's only two kinds of reconciliation to the almighty god. Some like these before the great white throne judgment here will be reconciled to the second death. They'll be rendered, they'll be rendered simply what they desired. They will get what they asked for and this is this their whole lives here have demonstrated this a life apart from god. In eternity god simply says I'm handing you over ultimately to what you've asked for in your whole life. Some, on the other side, those who choose repentance and faith, who forsake themselves here, who recognize their need, as we said a few weeks ago, to be saved for salvation, they will be reconciled to life. And that is relationship with God here and now, a life of joy and fulfillment here and now. But remember, not just that, more also a relationship with Christ when he returns. And To be saved from scenes like this. And more, to reign with him, to have hope with him. Amazing. Christian, our reconciliation is not to stand before the judgment throne here on that day. No, our reconciliation is to stand with Christ. Reigning, as we've already learned, looking out with him on that day. Already settled with him. Ready for life after death for those that stand with Christ in that day. Look at what else is reconciled. Look at verse 14. What else is reconciled? Death and Hades. That's another word for hell. Death and hell. Death and hell. Go into that fire with Satan. Go by the way of destruction. That's right. That means those standing with Christ, mark this, mark this, those standing with Christ do not taste that second death. Those standing with Jesus Christ, those in Christ, do not taste the second death. Brothers and sisters, I implore you this morning in this pandemic to look to this horizon. Look at this. This is hope's reconciliation. It's your reconciliation in Christ. One more. Hope's renewal. Hope's renewal. So, earthly armies in the wake of what we've just read, have been conquered. Satan is defeated. Death has been swallowed up forever. Who's left? Who is left? Simple math tells us it's just the triune God and his people. Right? That's it. But where do we go? To some bodiless, spiritual realm? Do our souls get to pick out their own special cloud to sit on? with your own designated harp and all, is that it? Is that what's coming? Special piece of heavenly real estate? Is that what we're ultimately to look forward to? Just existing. Just floating. That's it. That's what we're looking forward to, to just exist. Well, I want to level with you, church. If that is what your hope is in, I mean, just floating, just being, no color, no physical, no substance at all, If that's what you're looking ahead to, I want to submit to you, then you're not looking forward at all, are you? If that is what your hope is in, that picture, right, of the future, then you're actually not feeling very hopeful at all right now. Saint, by the grace of Christ, you've escaped hell. But you might say, escape to what? Spiritual nothingness? Eternal vanilla? I mean, Christian, is that your hope? Is that your hope? Thankfully, the Bible doesn't end at Revelation 20. It doesn't end there. It could, but it doesn't end there. There's more, much, much more. Look at chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. First of all, as you look at those two verses in the landscape, the worn-out heavenly courtroom and the wrath-stained earth are renewed with what? A new heavens and a new earth. The old is gone, the new has come. So the first thing we learn about life and eternity is this, is that it is a life like this one you see here, a life like, interestingly, Genesis 1 and 2 lived within what? The heavens and the earth. A very real, physical life on a new heavens and a new earth. And you will ask this, so in eternity, in eternity we're going to live on this earth with earthly lives like now? And the answer resoundingly is yes. A very physical life you will live in eternity, yes. In eternity we will live on this earth, not on clouds, we will live on the earth. And we will have physical bodies, not just spiritual ones. These are the things we're tempted to gloss over. 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3. We've looked at this before. Many other passages that speak of our glorified physical bodies. Physical bodies. Now, that may renew your hope in the eternal state. You may say, okay, wow, I never considered the fact that we will physically live. And then all of a sudden, you may feel like you come back to your senses and say, well, wait a minute. What about this earth? This is a godless earth. Even more, God crowded out by sin, pain, and death. It may be defeated in that time, but won't it come back? The prospect of a physical life after death on earth may excite, but like you may say, like all renewals, they don't last long, do they? They don't last long before things go back to the way they were, right? We all remember what happened in Genesis 3. But not long. This one will not be something that comes back after very long. In fact, it won't come back at all. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Christian, I want you to note the conditions of this new earth. God himself dwelling with his people. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Genesis 1 and 2? This is a return to the way it should have been, but very different now. But those conditions are exactly what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. God dwelling with his people. And note this, not only that, there are no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain at all. You say, that sounds like paradise, and it is, not just temporal paradise, not just a church-age paradise. This is not a thousand-year paradise. This is eternal paradise, forever, with God, death and pain-free. Remember, church, that is also a tear-free paradise on this earth, which is, by the way, a renewed earth. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Don't miss this, church. Not only are these words, this future renewal, true, but note God's declaration, what he says right away. Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. God does not say, I'm scrapping all these things and building something different. He didn't do that with you, did he? He didn't crumple you up and throw you out. He what he renewed you. He regenerated you. This is not crumpling up the earth like a paper ball and throwing it in the divine trash can. This is not the saints standing there nervous about what the new earth will be. No. This whole attitude, this whole cry, this declaration reeks of familiarity. This is the saints knowing what's coming, but knowing it in perfect form. This is renewal. This is renovation. We talked about this so much last fall when we talked about glorification. God is a renovator. He's a renovator. This means those familiar with earthly blessings, those that know those earthly things of God, those good ones given for us to enjoy, can look forward to those blessings in eternity. It means that all of those good things will be there, but renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. Like all things, this is hope's renewal. Now, saying that, we usually end our messages, don't we, with takeaways. I'd like to give you a bit of Velcro for times like this, right? Things that sink your teeth into. And today is no different. However, rather than just practical takeaways, I pray when you look at these final two chapters, I want to give you some energizing takeaways. Some ones that I know, Christian, you haven't thought about through this pandemic. And I just want to cast it before you when you think about the horizon ahead. Number one... As we look at these passages, consider this. There will be beauty. There will be beauty. In the rest of chapter 21, the angel shows John the city, the new Jerusalem. And he describes the city to John. And it is filled with beauty. You have rare jewels. You have pure gold. You have clear glass. Those elements are standards of beauty here and now. Are they not? It's not like there's something new in eternity, a new standard of beauty. No, you see the exact same standards of beauty in eternity. They're precious and adored now, and they're precious and adored there. And that means this, here's the principle, that no matter what you think beautiful is now, it means that in eternity, the standard will be exactly the same. You see that? No matter what you deem beautiful now, will be beautiful in eternity. Not something brand new, not something scary, not something you haven't seen. The beautiful things now, and I mean the purely beautiful things, will be beautiful in heaven. Church, all the things you hold purely beautiful, from architecture to the ocean, all of those things will be there in eternity and they will be pure. Imagine, no polluted ocean. But just a crisp, clear, beautiful ocean. No graffitied old building, just a pure and perfect building that you can just look at and appreciate in its beauty. That's one to look forward to. There will be beauty. Two, there will be different people and different roles. Look at verse 22 in chapter 21. Sorry, verse 22 in chapter 21. <clears throat> And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then look at this, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. We're going to come back to that passage, but for now we want to zone in on one thing. Twice we read there will be nations in eternity. That is plural, by the way. It's not just Israel that pops up, or it's not just some new nation. A plural, nations, that's many. That means nations and nationalities. Like today, people of every tribe and tongue will be in eternity. That's what this tells us. And that means ethnicities, and where there is ethnicities, there is what? There is diversity, beautiful diversity. Diverse looks, diverse styles, diverse customs. The best of the best in the new heavens and the new earth the very best of the nations, the very best of our differences will be there. And not just diverse people, but look at verse 24. Kings of the earth. That tells us, yes, there will be different roles in eternity. Some will be kings, some won't be kings. Yes, there will be managers in the new earth and gardeners too. Blessedly so. And the best part of all these functions in doing them, they will be doing their functions, note this, with the curse reversed. We talked about the parallels to Genesis 1 and 2. Well, what changed the work? The curse. Well, it's been undone here at the end. That work now, no matter whether manager or gardener, will take place in a reverse-cursed environment. So that means not only will there be work that is pain-free, but there will be work that is sin-free too. And consider what that means. It means that whatever your role in eternity is, Christian, whatever your function is in eternity, you are going to love it. You're absolutely going to love it. Think of the best work that you've ever done here on earth. I mean, I want you to think about the very best work you've done here on earth. I don't want you to just multiply it literally, infinitely. And that's what we're talking about here. How much you love that, how much infinitely more you're going to love it in eternity. And maybe we begin to get a sense of it. That. That's two. Look at the third one. There will be daily life. Listen to this. Like streets and food and seasons. Look at chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So much here. That last verse, well, look at verse 2 particularly, tells us that we will have things that are very familiar to us. For example, streets, just like today. I think it's just a small detail, but it's no small detail in God's word. It also tells us what else in this passage, not only will there be streets, but there will be what? Food, and not only food, but what? Twelve different types of fruit, different kinds of food. God has blessed us with all kinds of different fruits and foods, has he not? So much of that we recognize as what? God's blessings. Bananas, oranges, hot oven fresh bread, ice cold lemonade, lemonade. What about national food? How many of us recognize the blessing? Mexican tacos, Italian pasta, Indian curry, American burgers. We love the diversity, the blessedness of God's food. All with nations giving us food types in eternity. You can look forward to those little bites of heaven. Are they not here sometimes, that first bite in your favorite food? Isn't it a little slice of heaven at times? Well, you can look forward to that in eternity. And verse 2, we see months. So, not just streets and food, we see months, which point to what? Months tell us there will be time, an infinite time, but we will have time. And time tells us we'll have days and we'll have seasons. All there in eternity. Yes, there will be no end, but all the blessings of time, right? Removed from the decay of time, we will have the blessed renewal of time, season by season. Spring rain. Summer cabins and docks, fall leaves and winter snowflakes, all there. But note this, all there purely. There will be no humid ex or cold snap. It will be perfect in eternity. Perfect. All there for us to enjoy without the overall decay or extremes. Daily life with all its blessings await you, Christian, in eternity. But that is not all. That is not all. We have looked at all the different things. Beauty, different roles, different people. Daily life, food, seasons. But that is not the best of the new heavens and new earth. Last one, there will be light. There will be light. I want you to look at verse 22 again. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. What a picture, beloved. Let us never forget. Those blessings are wonderful, and they give us different kinds of encouragement for eternity. But this here now is your great encouragement and hope. This is the great renewal. And note it, a light that never goes out. Look at it, verse 25. The gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Never-ending light. And we're not talking about a lamppost. We're not even talking about the sun of the solar system. We're talking about the light of Christ in eternity, forever. That's what you're looking forward to. Not just God with you, with us on the earth, but his light shining, illuminating all pure things forever. Forever. Jesus wraps this picture of renewal and eternity with this. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, we would say this. Jesus says, you can count on this. They are trustworthy and true because I say so. Imagine God guaranteeing this. Trustworthy and true. Church, this is hope's renewal. All of this renewal, and listen, there's no virus here. There's no shutdown here. There's no protests going on here. This is the renewal that you look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. Let this certain picture of what is coming be on your heart and on your mind just like Florence did when she had another chance. Two months after Florence Chadwick came up half a mile short in Catalina Bay, she stepped into the water once again, and again, the morning was fog-filled. However, this time, Florence swam not 25 and a half miles. She swam all 26 miles. She went the distance. She reached the shore. Asked later how she managed it this time, because remember, it was just as foggy. Asked this time, she said this I quote, I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my mind while I swam, end quote. Christian, that's how you will make it through this pandemic in life as well. Not by what your eyes can see, because they're not seeing a lot that's good right now, are they? You're not going to make it through by what you reason and discern and see with your eyes. No, faith knows nothing of that. Even more, hope is not rooted in what you can see. Hope has never been rooted in what you can see. Never. We close with Romans 8, 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Westmount, we hope for what we cannot see, especially foggy with COVID-19. But soon our faith will be turned to sight when the horizon becomes the shore.